Hello, this is Rob Massey. Welcome back to the Planet Jesus podcast. This is the show for skeptics and Christians who want to learn more about the Bible and understand better how to interpret and apply it. This is Episode 9, The Death of Tribalism. In this episode, we will look at how recent events in Washington, D.C. underscore the growing hostility between the various ideological and racial tribes in the U.S. and across the world, and take an example from one of Israel's kings to understand how to leverage the positive aspects of a tribe while also becoming one nation and how that example is ultimately perfected in the example of Jesus. I hope you enjoy this program. On January 18th, in front of the Lincoln Memorial in Washington, D.C., a group of students from Covington Catholic High School participating in an anti-abortion march for life, a group of Native Americans walking in the Indigenous Peoples March, and a small religious group called the Black Hebrew Israelites came together in an emblematic conflagration of culture, race, and polarizing ideologies. A viral video of the smirk that was seen round the world led media outlets to rage against white privilege, which is understandable, particularly by those who've been victimized by it. I was caught up in the narrative. I thought, wow, stupid redneck kids from Kentucky acting with disrespect to people of other cultures and races. But the next day, however, I started to hear a quick retreat by some of the media outlets. Maybe the viral smirk had deeper context. I read Andrew Sullivan's article, The Abyss of Hate Versus Hate. In it, he described how he viewed and recorded the comments of all parties involved, all 100 minutes of YouTube footage. His conclusion, which is now the conclusion of most, was that these teens were caught up in a situation that they were probably not mature enough to handle and probably exhibited some latent racism in their chants and body language. But their actual comments were not racist. According to Sullivan, the black Hebrew Israelites, they are an aggressive fringe sect that are anti-white and anti-Semitic. He claims that out of all of the footage, the problems were caused by this, quote, small group of aggressive, hateful men using a bullhorn to broadcast the crudest racial slurs backed up by recitations of the Bible, end quote. These men challenged the boys, claiming they were gay or future school shooters. They raged against the Native American group, one woman specifically saying that she was out of order and that she needed to bring her husband to engage them. Sullivan records the quotes from the black Hebrew Israelites. I won't repeat them here because my podcast rating is general audience, but I encourage you to hear the things that were said. What shocked me was how quickly I allowed the current narrative about white privilege and my dislike and distrust of the current president on moral and ethical grounds to combine and cause me to jump to a premature conclusion, something most of the media did, but thankfully not all. There is currently a prevailing psychological tyranny that introduces a dangerous form of racism. The majority of the media did not report the inflammatory language of the black Hebrew Israelites, 
although it was readily available, because of what Sullivan identified as a change in the definition of racism. He writes, quote, Racism now only means prejudice plus power, end quote. That resulted in the imputation of greater evil on the smirk of the white male high school teen than the avalanche of offensive, bigoted, racist, homophobic speech of the black male Hebrew Israelites. I am a white boy from Southern California. I lived in Los Serranos. I grew up on the other side of the tracks with Duvall Jones and Manuel Byrd. I envied the privilege and advantages uh, that it appeared my brothers by race had. As teens, looking back at it now, I think they unwittingly rubbed my nose in their prosperity. But at the time, I thought they were malicious. I say that to convey my recognition that these Covington boys were not completely innocent. They certainly intensified the situation, and if the current president didn't exacerbate racial tensions with his rhetoric, they may have felt less emboldened to behave so defiantly, specifically in the face of the Native American. Of course, only a psychologist specializing in crowd dynamics could identify all the nuances that occurred to create the situation that day. As I saw it, the Native American man should not have pressed into the space of the teen and beat his drum with such defiance. Although it was reported by him later that he was actually trying to diffuse the situation between the students and the black Hebrew Israelites, and on reflection that's likely the case. I began to think about the Covington affair and thought that, theologically, Jesus came to abolish tribalism. The more I thought about it, I realized that there are no innocent parties. We are all guilty. We select the facts that fit our narratives and are content with our tribal rightness at the expense of peace with others. Christians are no exception. Brian McLaren, in his book Generous Orthodoxy, Referring to Christian failures and atrocities, writes, quote, We must not separate ourselves from past and present failures in a holier-than-thou schism, end quote. He's referring to the tendency of Christian subgroups to blame the atrocities of the past on the Catholics or the fundamentalists or the liberals or anyone but not our subgroup within Christendom. He goes on to refer to the novelist Orson Scott Card, who tells the story of a town that perpetrated a horrible atrocity. It was cursed, and a stipulation of the curse was that it had to tell all newcomers and visitors the sad story of what had happened there. This curse was also a blessing, because the townspeople were able to continually affirm that they did not want to be the same people who committed the atrocity. People with position and power must be diligent to look back on and reconfirm their commitment to avoid the mistakes of the past. At the end of the day, whatever the tribe, whether the Tutsis or the Hutus of Rwanda, the European Americans and the Native Americans, the Germans and the Jews, the Democrats, the Republicans— we are all capable of brutality, and if not reminded, we will begin to see the atrocities of others and never take action to remember and guard against our own inclinations. 
Speaking of the Tutsis and the Hutus of Rwanda, I recommend the new television drama Black Earth Rising as a theatrical depiction of the complexity of tensions between tribes that an outsider might not easily grasp. Sullivan's article clearly captures how we can fall into the same traps of racism and tribalism. He writes, quote, The Trump threat to liberal democracy is deepening, largely because its racial animus and rank tribalism are evoking a response that is increasingly imbued with racial animus and tribalism in an ever-tightening spiral of mutual hostility. End quote. Do you see what he's driving at? The perceived racism and tribalism of President Trump is causing others to respond in kind. This will not lead to the removal of racism and tribalism, but as he goes on to write, quote, This is not the language of politics, it is the language of civil war. End quote. If we do not take care, we will allow the current cultural and philosophical ideologies to create a permanent rift where we devalue each other to the point of civil war. It's ugly, neighbor against neighbor, until all are dead or maimed. So, what does the Bible say about tribalism? One example of how the Bible addresses tribalism comes from the story of David. He is best known as the king of the Jews around 900 years before Jesus was born. But before we dig into David's example, we need to understand that he was not born with a silver spoon in his mouth or going to the best Catholic schools. He was the ninth born son of a sheep herder in a small town called Bethlehem, only made famous to us because Jesus was said to be born there. By the way, uh, Jesus, according to the genealogies of Matthew and Luke, traces lineage back to David. Uh, that's like us using Ancestry.com to find that we were part of or descendants of the royal family. And then I think we all find our path there somehow. So it was with Jesus. He was just a poor descendant of David. It's a nice thing to tell your friends on the playground, but has very little value outside of that. Anyway, another thing about David's background... He was the descendant of a Moabite. The Moabites were a hated and distrusted tribe that lived across the Jordan River, just beyond the border of Israel. The stories of the Moabites, as told by Israeli storytellers, are pretty harsh. For example, Moab, the patriarch of the family, was the progeny of the incestuous relationship between Lot that was Abraham's nephew, and one of his daughters. In a spiral of mutual hostility, Israel dismissed them because of their origins, and the Moabites returned the sentiment by refusing to support them when they were in peril. There are many examples, but we're not going to go into those now. The point is this. When Israel heard Moabite, they'd spit in disdain. Here, David's great-grandmother was Ruth the Moabite. As David grew up, he did some heroic things, like killing Goliath and slaying a bunch of the enemies of Israel. And because of this, King Saul allowed him to marry his daughter and lead his armies. Now, King Saul was king of Israel prior to David. After some time, Saul became jealous of David's growing popularity. 
At one point, he heard some people singing in the street, Saul has slain his thousands and David has slain his tens of thousands. That was a blow to Saul's ego. And David fled in exile. Now, I'm going somewhere with this story related to why David abolished tribalism. So hang in there with me. When David fled from Saul, he fled to the southeast into Philistine territory. Along the way, he found a ragtag, motley crew of expatriates from diverse tribes and families and nations who found themselves exiled from Saul's kingdom for various reasons. This group formed a military cadre that the Philistine king Achish leveraged to help him win a few battles. Never any battles against Israel, but against other enemies of the Philistines. Walter Brueggemann, in his book, David's Truth in Israel's Imagination and Memory, writes about David at this time of his life. Quote, In commenting on the social situation of the Habaru, the Habaru is the ancient name for the Hebrews, George E. Mendenhall writes, The clearest example is David. He lost status in the Israelite community by flight, caused by the enmity of the king. There gathered about him other refugees, motivated by economic as well as other concerns. All were similarly without legal protection and had to maintain themselves by forming a band under the leadership of David, which was then able to survive by cleverness combined with considerable degree of mobility. As a note, I just want you to see here that sometimes tribalism is forced on humanity by oppression and marginalization. The indigenous people's march, for example, is a natural response to marginalization of a particular people group. Brueggemann continues, quote, In his discussion of order and vengeance, Mendenhall refers specifically to the episodes of 1 Samuel 24, 8-15 and 26, 10-24 featuring David and his company as enemies of the king and the established civil order. What I think is important about the two stories referred to by Mendenhall is that in both cases, David refused to kill Saul and take his throne, but he spared him. Let's continue with Brueggemann. Quote, Thus, this is survival literature, shaped and told among those who survived by imagination, unsanctioned by the powers of the day. This kind of tribe or tribal grouping must distance itself from the rationality, the truth claims, and memories of the dominant state if it is to survive, End quote. I do not want to legitimize every tribe or tribal grouping or their behaviors. For example, the black Hebrew Israelites mentioned earlier. I legitimize their right to exist, but not always their actions. But there is a time during oppression where a tribe must form to call into question the claims and truth claims of the powers that be. Brueggemann continues, quote, That is, it must develop its own truth, that is, cast as a counter-truth. It must be very sure of itself and admit no self-doubt, now, when I term this literature the trustful truth of the tribe, I mean to understand it as an alternative sketching of reality that serves the interest of a community in deep tension with the dominant rulers and rules of the day, end quote. 
Listen, a free society will always allow this kind of tension to form as a way of keeping the natural tendency for state dominance or position power from having the final word. Brueggemann continues, quote, If such a truth literature is to provide energy, nerve, and legitimacy for this marginal community, it must of necessity be nervy, unashamed, and a bit bawdy, because it means to provide an alternative world in which to live. This political partisan narrative of tribal truth is focused on the awesome person of David, who embodied the very elements required for survival. This literature knows, without ever needing to be explicit, that survival requires acting against the civilities of the day, for civilities are modes of social control. To maintain life in a contrasting mode required distancing from such forms of control. The presence of such literature in the biblical canon must give pause to those of us who have thrived on civility and have come to equate propriety with the claims of faith, end quote. As Brueggemann states, such communities like those around David might appear to be countercultural, divisive, and improprietous, but it was necessary for their survival. And so it is with some of the groups that seem to oppose you and what you consider civility or what I consider civility. We need to give space to these groups to cry out their truth. We need to listen to them. We need to dialogue with them. Let's fast forward a few months in the life of David. He's made king over Judah. Now remember, there were 12 tribes that initially migrated from Egypt into the region of Palestine. And one tribe, Levi, uh, they were forbidden by tribal law to possess any of the land. So David was born into a family that was part of the tribe of Judah. And after the death of Saul, the people of Judah made David king. David attempted to build relationships with the other tribes, but instead a period of intertribal strife, fighting, political intrigue, and other tense events began. Does this sound familiar? After several years of David leading the tribe of Judah in its central city of Hebron, located in the far south, David was invited by the other tribes to be their king. Instead of remaining in Hebron, which may have engendered jealousy from the northern tribes and been more convenient to David, he found a neutral city. The name of the city was Jebus, later called Jerusalem, and the city of David. What I want to convey is that David started as a partisan within Israelite politics, an outsider acting against those in power. But when it became his time to rule, he embraced the other tribes and accommodated potential points of friction. For example, moving his capital and not killing all previous opponents. Tying this back to the Covington affair in Washington, D.C. two weeks ago, or the endless history of abuses in power that we could go on and on about, I'm trying to point out that at some point, tribalism has to dissolve into one nation, while allowing for the possibility of civil unrest and of the retelling of our story so that we never forget past failures. That said, we also need to be careful that as we correct the abuses, we do not become abusers. As Mr. Sullivan wrote in the New York Magazine article, quote, 
It's reasonable to note the social context of bigotry and the shades of gray in which the powerful should indeed be more aware of how their racial and gender prejudices can hurt others and the powerless should be given some slack, that is, slack for their misbehavior or incivility. But if that leads you to ignore or downplay the nastiest adult bigotry imaginable and the focus on a teen boy's silent face as the real manifestation of evil, you are well on your way to creating a new racism that mirrors aspects of the old. This is the abyss of hate versus hate, tribe versus tribe. This is a moment when we can look at ourselves in the mirror of social media and see what we have become. End quote. I'll tell you, Sullivan had some things to say. Back to David. His actions led him from being a revolutionary to a king who consolidated the tribes of Israel. In this time of social, political, and religious sectarianism, it is important to think about how we can bring people together. Sullivan talks about the current polarization and hatred as, quote, the ongoing extinction-level event, end quote. If he's correct, and we have started down the path towards dystopian extinction, we need to take corrective action, dial down the rhetoric, turn off our news channels, and sit together in a neutral place and discuss what one nation would look like in all its diversity and respect for others. Remembering the abuse and accept the telling and sometimes the imaginative retelling of stories of abuse that may be the only way to clear the wounds and move forward together. As always, I bring it back to Jesus. He was the promised descendant of David who would bring about everlasting peace and reconciliation. He would do this by the embracing of hate, the hate of the powerful, by subjecting himself to the cross. While dying on the cross, he cried out, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. In these final minutes of the podcast, I want to show how Jesus put tribalism to death when he died on the cross. First, let's establish that the early Christian authors believed Jesus to be the descendant of King David. Here is Matthew's account in Matthew chapter 1. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham, Abraham the father of Isaac, Isaac was the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, Now, it's important to remember that she was an Aramean, a non-Israelite woman. She was the daughter-in-law of Judah, who played the role of a prostitute in order to get pregnant by her father-in-law. You can't make this stuff up. Let's continue. And Perez, the father of Hezron, and Hezron, the father of Ram, and Ram, the father of Amminadab, and Amminadab, the father of Nation, and Nation, the father of Salmon, and Salmon, the father of Boaz by Rahab. Now, Rahab is called the harlot in other places. Let's continue. And Boaz, the father of Obed by Ruth. Remember, she was the Moabite, David's great-grandmother. And Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of David, the king. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. Matthew can't even bring himself to say the name Bathsheba because they considered her to be a bit of a homewrecker. 
and Solomon, the father of Rehoboam, and so on until you get down to Jesus. But we won't go through the whole genealogy. What I wanted to point out is, notice the only four women listed in the genealogy of Jesus. They were all women who made questionable decisions, had a sketchy past, or were not the correct race, and I placed correct race in air quotes. All of these women, like David, showed intelligence, daring, initiative, and courage to further what they thought the plan of God was. You'd have to go back and read each of the surrounding narratives to understand the value of these four women and how they recognized the will of God sometimes well before what the male counterparts did. Matthew did not have to call out these women to establish his genealogy. So why did he do that? In my opinion, he's making at least three theological points. First, the point that the genetic history of Jesus was full of colorful and diverse characters, men and women, and that God does not need perfection of genealogy to bring about salvation. Jesus was not the descendant of perfect people, and because of this, he could have mercy on others which possessed similar pasts. I venture to say that that includes all of us. The second point is that both Jews and Gentiles would be included in the global kingdom of peace that Jesus was establishing. And third, women would be prominent in the kingdom of God, a departure from the male-dominated world that was the norm and continues to be the norm in many places and cultures, including the church today. If you were to go to abolish tribalism, you would have to have a genealogy like Jesus. Not pure, but multiracial. Not perfect people, but flawed people who made good after their failures. It helps bridge barriers. It brings context and relatableness to all lives. When you look at somebody who has that same kind of diverse background, you think, me too. I was there. I was abused. I'm from that culture, etc. The diversity of genealogy is how Matthew starts his story. Notice how he ends it. In Matthew 28, verses 16 through 20, Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. For my skeptic friends out there, doubt was accepted by the early Christian authors. It is only in a deeply polarized society that we draw too deep a line in the philosophical sand and the theological sand. I apologize for how I've contributed to that in the past. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age." Now, this making disciples was not a form of colonialism. That's a bastardization. That's a corruption of the intent of Jesus. So let's not superimpose the abuses and failures of the church and the nations that uh, were supported by the church as the example that Christ was wanting us to live out. Notice that the disciples were to be made of all nations, the work of Jesus was initially intended to extend outside the tribal boundaries of Israel. Jesus, like David, had a diverse background that made him an ideal candidate to be king. Interestingly, 
the early Christian authors reported that the capital city of the new kingdom was everywhere. When John describes it in the book of Revelation chapter 21, the walls of the city extend the length of the known world. So Jesus has centrally located. Everyone has access to his city of rule. Also, as the disciples were being made, they were not conscripted into an army of culturally homogenous automatons, but they were allowed to maintain their respective cultures. They could avoid most of the laws that had been bound to the nation of Israel. This was a point of contention as the church initially expanded, but it was settled that the cultural and tribal differences could be maintained and the people in those cultures could still be considered full-fledged citizens of planet Jesus. Finally, I want to look at the image of Jesus presented by John 60 years after Jesus' death. John is lamenting in Revelation 5 that the mystery of God could not be fully understood because no one was worthy to open this book of mysteries that God had. The angel said, don't weep, John. The lion of the tribe of Judah has conquered. Now, now we're getting somewhere. I was wondering when Jesus would start kicking butt and taking names and on my enemies and on his. Not really. What's interesting is that when John turned to see the lion, he sees the slain lamb. The lamb has seven eyes. I know it's a little creepy, but not to John's early readers. They recognize this as being all understanding or full understanding. He had seven horns, which meant that he had all power. But how did this lamb use all that knowledge and power? He used it to redeem and deliver out of slavery every tribe of the earth. Notice verses 9 and 10 of the fifth chapter of Revelation. And they sang a new song, saying... Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom of priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. There is so much there. What John is saying is that the elite priestly ruling class, which was exclusive to one tribe within the one nation of Israel, is now extended to everyone. We are all called to be mediators of God's love and grace to others. No tribe is accepted. No language is a barrier. No people group or demographic is forbidden. And every national political power can be accommodated. Power structures and economies and hierarchies They're eliminated as being factors of importance. So we can breathe easier. Political and cultural winds will change, and when they change against us, we shouldn't conserve too militantly. When we are oppressed, we can cry out against the prevailing oppressive narratives without feeling like we have to destroy our perceived enemies. So how do we move forward when hate versus hate is so prevalent? It seems that we need a leader who understands what it means to be poor and then gain wealth and power, to be multiracial or to be aligned with a hated race and come out of those abusive experiences without prejudice toward any other tribe. We need someone who respects and honors women. I think we have him. He will not be the next prime minister, 
He's already received the title from his followers of King of Kings. He wants us to love and respect and honor each other through our differences. Otherwise, hate versus hate will win the day. Nations will rise and fall under the weight of civil war, and lives will be lost. If you are a Christian, downplay the rhetoric of hate. Promote peace and go out of your way to understand others, not in a patristic manner, but as a student who may learn new ways for being human. Thank you for listening. There are hundreds of thousands of podcasts out there, and you could have chosen any, but I sincerely appreciate your investment of time into mine. The show notes for this and all episodes and other links to source material can be found on my website at planetjesus.net. The Planet Jesus podcast is published on iTunes, Stitcher, and Spotify. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe, rate it, and share it with a friend. Thanks again for listening.